and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, December 17th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by a video conference by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. And my KHN colleague, Mary Agnes Carey. Great to be here. Later in this episode, we will hear from Elizabeth Mitchell of the Pacific Business Group on Health. She'll talk about the future of employer-provided health insurance. But first, the news. Let's start, as we seem to always do these days, with those people on Capitol Hill who want to go home for the holidays and who are, if reports are to be believed, nearing a deal on both a spending bill for the rest of the fiscal year and a COVID relief measure. I will say this seems to be one of those rare times when a small bipartisan group, senators put something together and manages to win the support of most of the rest of everyone else. But obviously, it is not a done deal. Um, Alice, where are we as of Thursday morning? So it went from negotiations where everybody gets a little of what they want to most people don't get what they want, but it's mutual. And so they can at least get something done. What they're trying to do is they're trying to use, as they often do, the threat of a government shutdown to motivate the two sides to come together. And the same sticking points that have been blocking more relief from going out for months, which is Democrats are really focused on getting state and local funding as, you know, state and local jurisdictions are struggling. Republicans want a liability shield for corporations so they don't get sued when their workers get COVID. And now the package is set to include neither of those things, although Democrats argue that there are other pots of money in there that that state and local governments can use specifically to get the vaccine out, which is the top, top priority. And there are a lot of fears of states not having enough funding to do that. So we don't have a deal yet, but lawmakers are say they're confident it'll come together, even if they have to work through the weekend, which, as we know, they do not like to do. And Rebecca, funding for the government runs out uh, Friday night at midnight. What is the status of the spending bill that this is all supposed to be loaded onto? The $1.4 trillion omnibus bill is essentially done Uh, They have been negotiating on that, and they feel like they are at a good place there. So that includes all of the different funding for agencies. Remember that the fiscal year started on October 1st. We are in our annual tradition of Congress kicking the can down the road and continuing funding at the same levels rather than rewriting and adjusting the spending levels. So agencies have unfortunately kind of gotten used to this. We are in mid-December waiting for this to happen. This includes everything, all of the agencies, including health and human services, education, labor, all of the things that Congress has control over in terms of discretionary spending. So that part is essentially done. We are trying to work, as Alice said, on this 908 or so billion dollars for COVID relief. That has been held up by a variety of different things. One thing they were talking about was money for FEMA, uh, which they were talking about $90 billion for the states for disaster relief, uh, particularly related to COVID issues. And Republicans were suspicious that this was um, actually a backdoor way of getting more money to the states. And so some of them were questioning it. Others, some Republicans were saying, no, it really is for 
for what we say it is, um, and we're happy with it. But they were do discussing that. They were discussing the fine print on some of the rebate checks uh, that would go out um, somewhere in the order of 600 to $700. Um, they were talking about whether the unemployment benefits that need to be extended, that would be about $300 more per week, uh, how long that would go. So nothing is done until everything is done. And so they are trying to work through those last things. The politics of this are weird because one presumes that both sides really want COVID relief, and yet they're both sort of playing chicken with the other side. Um, and, you know, as Alice mentioned, at this point, both of them have retreated from their line in the sand. I mean, one would think that it's the Republicans who might end up standing in the way of this. Um, Mac, what are the politics? You know, exactly what you're saying. Both sides would want COVID relief. People of both parties are suffering. And I think that eventually the calendar will be a push you know, they kick the can down so far down the road, but then they want to go home. Democrats are kind of looking at this as a down payment before Biden takes office. And, and even President-elect Biden has used those exact words, down payment. So what's intriguing to me is we'll have all this discussion and wrangling, which we always have, and then we might be right back at it in early January. We've got to see the results of that Georgia runoff. But even if Democrats got the Senate, which I think is kind of a big jump, they wouldn't have a big margin there. And of course, as we know, their margin is going to drop in the House. So even if they come back at it, right, late January, early February, when unfortunately the COVID numbers are thought to be even worse. Yeah. We're going to go through all this again. I can hardly wait. I don't know about the rest of you. But. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's not that atypical for Congress, you know, when, they're, when they've gone beyond October 1st, which they have, you know, what is it, like 11 out of the last 12 years, they haven't finished the spending bills before the, the actual date they're supposed to finish them. Sometimes they get to the end of the year, and instead of finishing it, they'll kick it into February or even March. Or I think it was April a year or two ago. So it would be nice if they could wrap it all up, but I'm not counting on them wrapping it all up before they go home. And I think Mitch McConnell even threw in at a meeting yesterday or something about how the Republican candidates in Georgia need this thing passed, that they're getting hammered that this has not passed. So that's another incentive for Republicans to agree with Democrats and pass this thing. And move well, it. so one surprise that might also catch a ride on the year end behemoth of a bill in addition to the COVID relief package is a deal on surprise bills. Um, we had given this effort up some months ago, as I recall, but apparently the members of the four committees, two in the House and two in the Senate, did not give up on it. And they've come up with a compromise that protects patients from unexpected out of network bills and sets up an arbitration system for insurers and providers to try to settle on a fair payment. Is this really going to happen? Or are they, you know, they, as someone pointed out, there was a call from the senator's offices that worked on this saying, you know, we're, we're trying to get this through. And someone pointed out, said, you said that last December and it didn't happen e then either. So do, do we think it's going to happen this December? So it's a lot closer to being possible than it has been just because you aren't having Democrats versus Democrats or committees versus committees like you have been disagreeing on how this should be done. This is one of those fun circumstances in healthcare where everyone agrees this is a problem. Everyone agrees that, you know, the person who researches and finds a in-network hospital and goes in for surgery or something emergency, you know, shouldn't be hit with a huge bill, but they disagree on who should pick up the tab and how that should be done and how it should be worked out. Now you finally have 
folks coming together. Progressives really compromised a lot. They don't love this arbitration model, but it's better than nothing. And they got this agreement out. However, the industry is still attacking it and running ads against it. And that really could kill it just like it has in the past. The internal divisions have been somewhat resolved. Plus there's the added pressure of trying to hitch this to the last thing Congress can get out before the end of the year. But again, that opposition from the AMA and other groups could really kill it as it has in the past. And we should point out that that this Congress ceases to be on January 3rd. So if they don't pass it in this bill, it's not like the spending bills where the new Congress can come back and just sort of pick it all back up. This thing would have to start all over again. Rebecca, you were going to add something. I think that's one of the primary factors why this could potentially happen. Uh, The fact that they would have to go through the entire process again and at a time when Joe Biden is going to be dealing with COVID and a host of other priorities that he wants to get done. It is rare that you have all the committees of jurisdiction agreeing on something and it's gotten this close and they don't get it through. I mean, not that it hasn't happened before, but you know, they, they've jumped through a lot of hoops to get to where they are now. And of course, the Senate Help Committee Chairman Lamar Alexander, the Republican from Tennessee is retiring. So is the House Energy and Commerce ranking Republican, Greg Alden of Oregon. He's retiring. They've worked hard on this. They want to get it done. Um, they all compromised quite a bit. I mean, three committees were on, wanted one version and the House Ways and Means Committee wanted a different version. They ended up basically going much more closer to what the Ways and Means Committee wanted in order to break the impasse. And so everybody has given a little bit here and they want to get it done. We'll see. We'll see if it gets across the finish line. Things are unpredictable at the end, but there are reasons to be somewhat optimistic. What I find so weird about this um, is that they really did sort of bend more towards what the providers wanted than what the insurers wanted. And yet it's the providers who are still complaining about it. I honestly don't understand that. They seem to have given them most of what they wanted, and yet they're the ones who are jumping up and down. It was interesting. The American Medical Association put out a letter on that and, and walked through some of their differences. And some of them are small things that you think, okay, they have a point. There's something in there that says that the provider directories need to be up to date and that doctors who are out of network would be responsible for telling patients about who's in network. And the AMA said, well, how are we going to know that? Those little things can be worked out, I think. One big factor is that the AMA is just really concerned that smaller practices will have, will be disadvantaged. And this is a big fight between insurers and providers how are they going to get paid? Even though they're using the baseball style arbitration, one of the things the arbitrator has to consider is the inpatient median rate in the area. And so the AMA doesn't like that among a number of other things. So those are some of the things that that they brought up. But you're right, they did get a lot of what they wanted. So it's kind of interesting. Look, we'll see what the final language says, but I don't know how well patients are going to do with this thing, right? The providers, if, if the providers tell them we're not a network or here's your a network charge and you get an estimate 72 hours ahead of time, you can still be balanced billed. And a lot of this, think about 72 hours before a major surgery or if this is the doctor who's the expert on what you need and you're going to be stuck with this bill or you have to decline it. I think it may turn out, with all respect to everyone involved, to be more of a messaging legislation than actually results for patients. So 
two things. I think that fighting this could backfire for the AMA and other groups just because of what we were saying. Congress compromised so much uh, to give them what they want and they're still fighting it. That could lead lawmakers to say, well, why should we listen to them at all? They're, they're just going to, they can't get to yes, so let's just do what we want and do what's better for patients. I also think that there's going to be a lot of pressure because so many more people are going to the hospital right now than normal, and so many people are at risk of getting surprise bills from COVID than in the past, that that could bring additional pressure to get something done. That's a good point, Alice. And, you know, I think I've seen studies that say that one in five people already end up with a surprise bill when they go to the hospital. So there has there has been some polling on this suggesting that voters were interested in this. Obviously, that's been overtaken by COVID and other big issues. But earlier in the year, there was a, a strong appetite among the public for some sort of legislation on this. And President Trump would like to sign this bill. Um, although, you know, if they throw it into, they, they have to be careful what they throw it into to, to get everything signed. All right. Well, since we last met, the FDA did, as expected, grant an emergency use authorization to the COVID vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech. And anyone who's turned on the TV this week has seen health workers and nursing home residents getting vaccinated. As we speak, uh, an FDA advisory committee is discussing the Moderna vaccine, which uses the same technology as the Pfizer vaccine and appears to be just as safe and effective. So, Shortly, I expect we will have two vaccines available, although not in the number of doses that we could really use. So now comes the hard part. Who gets the vaccine after this first group of sort of everybody agrees on frontline health workers and people at super high risk living in congregate settings? At one point this week, the White House planned to have its staff vaccinated early, only to back off when it was pointed out that that seemed like line jumping. But public health officials do recommend that high-profile people get the vaccine sooner to help build confidence. So where is that fine line between looking like you're, you know, getting some kind of advantage and assuring the vaccine hesitant that this thing is safe? Well, it's not just those two factors. It's also ensuring continuity of government and ensuring our government can still function. And can our government still function if lots of our top officials get sick? I mean, we've seen that threat happen under the Trump administration. And so that's why just recently we've seen Tony Fauci going on TV and saying, hey, we got to get the president, vice president and president-elect and vice president-elect vaccinated as soon as possible. It's a matter of national security at that point. However, um, yeah, I wrote a whole piece this week on top officials are torn between you know, wanting to be protected themselves for continuity of government, also wanting to send the message uh, that the vaccine is safe and everyone should take it when they can, but not wanting to look like they're using their power and privilege to get ahead of more vulnerable people in line. And even though members of Congress don't yet know when they can get a vaccine um, or how many will be allotted to whom, they're already preemptively saying, I'm not going to cut the line in front of my more vulnerable constituents. And so there, there is a lot of sensitivity. I also talked to some experts who said, look, there is a lot of value to say, you know, Biden or Trump or Pence or whoever taking the vaccine publicly to instill confidence. But regular people can't get the vaccine right now. There's not enough. They won't be able to get it for months. I don't expect us to get it for many, many months to come. And so driving up a huge amount of demand and making people clamor for it now when they can't access it 
may not be the smartest move. Although I would I would point out that, you know, Congress back in the spring when Trump offered to send them testing said, no, no, no. I mean, there's like, you know, we don't want to because they didn't want to jump the line. But that didn't work out so well. We've had a awful lot of members of Congress and senators and staff and, you know, people who just work up there to support the Congress getting COVID partly because it wasn't that easy to get tested uh, on Capitol Hill. It, it does sort of make you wonder about them, you know, wanting to sort of do the right thing and wait their turn for the vaccine. Although, in, as Steny Hoyer, I think, pointed out, an awful lot of them are in the high risk group anyway and would be, if not, you know, near the front of the line, not that far from the front of the line. In response to the piece I wrote about this, you know, a lot of people angry that people who have consistently done the wrong things and sent the wrong messages for months could get priority access. And so it's not just that these are famous and powerful people looking like they're cutting the line. It's these are the people who for months have not worn masks, have spread misinformation about the pandemic, have downplayed it than getting protected themselves ahead of everyone else. And so there's there's a lot of tension around those dynamics as well. And the White House is still having holiday parties. I know. I just, I can't. Maskless holiday parties. Lots of them. Although I think I read somewhere that Trump is actually contraindicated for getting the vaccine because he had the monoclonal antibody treatment. And I think you have to wait at least 90 days. Otherwise, it could the vaccine itself could interfere with the, the treatment that he got. So but so Vice President Pence, I guess, is getting his shot tomorrow. Mac. Yeah, I just was going to say, I think it's, it's fascinating for us, right? We're here in Washington to look at what happens, Congress and White House and so on. But I think really fascinating lobbying battles at the state level are going to be the thing to watch. I mean, we've written about it. I know everybody on this uh, podcast today has written about it, this idea that you've got groups of dentists, bank tellers, farm workers, the Sheriff's Association, American Camp Association, the YMCA say they're providing learning programs in in absence of in-person schooling, so they should get the vaccine. I mean, the whole thing is going to be, you know, because I think if I understand this correctly, a lot of these decisions on distribution are going to be made at the state and local level. So who's lobbying where? What national associations give particular states money to lobby? How's the vaccine distributed? I mean, it's just going to be an amazing thing to watch as it unfolds. I will be interested to see if the states change their draft plans. They had to put together draft plans, and the Kaiser Family Foundation thankfully put a link to all of those plans on the website. But every state is doing it a little bit different. In Maryland, for example, they've only got two phases. In Georgia, they've got four. It's, you know, they, they every state is trying to prioritize people broadly in the same direction, but with the details differing. You know, do you put people who are over 65 with comorbid conditions ahead of essential workers and which essential workers and so forth. So to Mac's point, yes, I think it is going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. I saw, I think it was Wales, not the U.S., but a place that also needs to figure out how to distribute the vaccine is doing it by 10-year increments going down. It's like, you know, 60 to 70, 50 to 60, 40 to 50, and they and sprinkled in there are people with, you know, with comorbid conditions. Mac is right. This is going to be the, the thing to watch. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a proposal to pay Americans to take the vaccine. The idea was the government was going to be giving people money anyway for COVID relief, so why not get some societal benefit out of it? Now we have a piece in the New York Times by two behavioral economists suggesting that's not such a great idea because it sends the message that getting the vaccine isn't something that you want to do unless you get paid for it. So if not money, what will convince Americans to roll up their sleeves? My, my suggestion is still that Beyonce take, 
get the vaccine on camera. Dolly Parton. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely Dolly Parton. It's definitely Dolly Parton. That New York Times piece was great and really kind of goes against assumptions where if you pay someone to take the vaccine, it makes people assume that taking the vaccine is riskier than it really is. And it makes people not want to do it for the right reasons of protecting society. <laughs> but it did say that making things that people want to do contingent on getting vaccinated, like travel on particular airlines or to particular countries or, you know, participation in future events, you know, you can't go to a certain conference or concert or whatever if you if you can't show that you've been vaccinated that kind of gatekeeping uh could be could be more effective i you know i could also see certain companies leaning on their workers in that way but it'll be tricky for sure well hospitals already require most of their workers to get flu vaccines and it's not uncontroversial i mean there are people who who don't want to do it so i mean this obviously will play out somewhat the same way I, i love that point that scarcity can stimulate demand I mean, it happens in the consumer realm all the time, right? Like the hot toy at Christmas or the new iPhone. If they're hard to get, everybody wants them. It's pretty clear now these shots are in great demand. So this, you may not have to pay anybody. It might just consumer behavior just takes care of itself. We saw this play out in very stark ways during H1N1, where it was very scarce early on and people really wanted it. And by the time there was enough of it, People didn't want it anymore. So psychology plays a lot into this. There'll be a clamor because most people will want it. The question is how to get to those people who don't really want it. And the polling suggests that people are more likely, they're warming up to the idea. And and part of it is what Mac was talking about. Part of it is these are very effective vaccines. You know, if it's almost 95% effective, then... People are willing to take more risks. And also, I mean, you can see that the process is being followed, notwithstanding that the FDA commissioner very nearly got himself fired for something that he was about to do anyway, which is just bizarre. I mean, you know, trying as hard as President Trump has to make this political, the FDA has managed to keep it pretty convincingly scientific and, you know, running the right traps here. Um, and obviously, public health officials sort of on all sides have said it, too. So if people who trust public health will trust this vaccine, people who don't trust public health, there are other issues with. Um, speaking of which... Um, I feel like in one of the more troubling trends of 2020, both elected officials and public health officials are increasingly coming under physical threat from protesters who oppose basic public health measures like mask wearing and social distancing. A project by KHN and the AP has found that nearly 200 state and local public health leaders in 38 states have resigned, retired, or been fired since April 1st. In Idaho, a virtual meeting of public health officials was interrupted by live anti-mask protesters at the the doors of several of the officials, including one house where children were home alone. And in Kansas, the major, uh, the mayor of Dodge City quit her job for fear of angry protesters. Is this something that's going to die down when President Trump, who has egged a lot of these protesters on, is no longer president? Or is this something that's going to become the new normal? People don't like something, they're going to show up at their houses, sometimes with guns. It's really scary. And when this was happening several months ago, Trump was more explicitly egging it on. He was tweeting, liberate Michigan and whatnot. But you aren't really hearing that from him right now. 
and it's still happening, which makes me worried that it will continue to happen after he's out of office. And I think it's surging again now because the virus is surging again, which is making states clamp down more, close more businesses, implement stricter rules. And that's what's triggering this backlash. And it's being directed at the people who are trying to just follow the science and do their jobs. And protect the rest of the community. Right, right. Yeah, I, I also found um, uh, Kaiser, that we're <laughs> hyping all of Kaiser's <laughs> information today, but um, the new polling on um, the vaccine, and it was finding that, you know, there are different groups that are hesitant, but among Republicans who say they don't want to take the vaccine, they don't trust, you know, public health officials at all as a voice on this. And so they're just going to be harder to reach than other groups who are hesitant about the vaccine for other reasons. I mean, I worry that this may deter people from going into public health. Public health has had kind of a surge of interest of late, even before the pandemic. Uh, And now I feel like it's a place where you can get fired or you can get threatened for trying to do what I think 10 or 20 years ago would have seemed to be a pretty benign type of work. I think that's a fair thought because I mean, I hope we never have another COVID, but this probably isn't the last time we're going to go through this. And if the table is set that exactly to your point, you can get threatened, you can get threatened taking your kids to school, you get people show up outside your house. I mean, it's not the biggest incentive to go into that when you could probably go into the private sector and make more money anyway and less hassle. So it's definitely, I think that's a fair thought on your part, Julie. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with Elizabeth Mitchell. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Elizabeth Mitchell, president and CEO of the Pacific Business Group on Health. The PBGH represents large employers, both public and private, and has a long history of pushing the healthcare system to be more consumer friendly and value conscious. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. Very glad to be here. So tell us a little bit more about PBGH and what it does. I think a lot of people don't know just how influential you are as a group of employers. Sure. PBGH has actually been around for over 30 years, and we have led innovations in the market for healthcare purchasing and delivery system and payment reform, a lot of which have actually been scaled. And people don't know their origins were a PBGH program. One example is a center of excellence program that was incubated by Walmart, McKesson, and Lowe's and brought to PBGH about eight years ago to really scale across the country with other employers. And through programs like that, our members have been able to actually see higher quality, which is what they care about most for their employees, better experience, and reduce total cost of care. So they have been able to prove that better care does in fact cost less. And they also know that working together, working across employers and across regions and states is actually the only way to truly change the healthcare cost trajectory. So I want to start with a little bit of news. We appear to have a proposed compromise on the surprise billing controversy, the thing uh, this Congress promised to do way back at the beginning, and now we're way up near the end. What do you think of that compromise? Well, we're glad to see some progress. I actually testified on the Lower Healthcare Cost Act bill over 18 months ago. And we were so encouraged because there was bipartisan support. This is not a partisan issue. We are seeing just abuse of power (laughs) and it's really harming employees and patients and just people. And we were very optimistic that we would see faster progress. But as you know, 
Um, there was a lot of lobbying on this. Millions of dollars were spent to protect this egregious business practice. But we are seeing um, some some forward motion. We don't love it. We think the simplest approach would be just to tie prices to Medicare. Administratively simple, straightforward, inexpensive. And as you know, Medicare right, rates are required by law to cover the cost of care. So we're not asking people to sort of not be paid fairly. But the proposal that is coming out right now includes sort of an arbitration process which is, it's better than nothing. And the most important thing is that it will protect consumers. So first and foremost, that's the aim. But we also think it's going to extend essentially the same process we have now. It's opaque, you know, secret pricing information and, you know, expensive arbitration (laughs) process. So it's not a big difference from what we're doing now. It's just again, protecting the consumer. So that is the most important point. We would much prefer something simpler and less expensive. But again, we we are pleased to see any movement. I'd also like to add, though, that surprise billing is just one of the egregious anti-competitive practices that we are seeing in the industry. So this is a step in the right direction. But to really make a difference, to really have impact, Congress should also include all of the provisions in the Lower Healthcare Cost Act to take on all of the anti-competitive practices that will actually enable a more functional market. That would be nice. The pandemic this year has changed so much. Um, what impact is it having on employer-provided health insurance, and might it be the catalyst for even bigger changes to come? One of the things that people seem to lose sight of is that large employers, the U.S. employers that, you know, our members employ over 15 million people are actually under significant financial pressure. Not all of them, but the large majority. And they are spending money on health care and, and too often on wasteful health care that could be going into their core business. So the tolerance for that is going down because they have got to save jobs and really invest in, you know, keeping people employed. So there is a new focus on cost containment. And again, our members are first and foremost focused on quality, but they are really also focused on getting the waste out of the system. So I think there will be pressure for meaningful change. And they are looking at things like paying more and paying differently for primary care. They know that a strong primary care foundation will keep people healthy, keeps people out of the hospitals, and it's really how you have a high-value system. And we've also seen primary care be at extraordinary risk through the pandemic because the fee-for-service system meant if people weren't coming in, they weren't getting paid. We are seeing primary care practices shutter when we need them most. So just one example of how employers are really rethinking how they pay for healthcare. And they are committed to trying to save primary care. I know generally large employers in particular don't want to give up providing health care because they want to have a say, as you say, in the quality and in the cost. Um, But is is the pressure getting too much for many particularly smaller employers to even be able to offer health insurance to their workers? I think so. I think small and medium-sized employers 
you know, it's an entirely different equation because they have so little leverage over the healthcare system. You've got these behemoth healthcare systems and health insurers who simply aren't responsive to them. And they are sort of desperate for ways to afford healthcare for their employees. They want their employees to be healthy. They want to, you know, be good stewards of their resources, but it is really hard when the whole system sort of ignores that. <laughs> um, it's it's different for jumbo employers who are very invested in this. They are self-insured, our members are, and they bear all the risk for these costs. So they their incentives are totally aligned with keeping people healthy. And this is a big ticket item for employers. As I said, our members spend over $100 billion a year. So they are invested in making sure that money is spent wisely on the best quality, best experience. And really, they need to see value for that spend. I do think as prices just continue to go up and economic pressures increase, we're going to be having different conversations about the future of, of insurance. So I know that healthcare prices in general and drug prices in particular are a top issue for employers, as you've been saying, with Congress and the federal government making so little headway on this issue. Where else can employers turn to get a better deal? You know, we hear a lot about, you know, turn this over to the federal government and if they could fix it, that would be great. <laughs> but, you know, you see what happened on surprise billing. It took 18 months to make any headway on a almost unanimous <laughs> piece of legislation. So we are pragmatic. You know, we can't hold our breath and wait for Congress. We have got to really take this problem on in the market. And our members are prepared to step up and intervene much more directly into care delivery and into how care is purchased and paid for. So they have indicated that they will support policy intervention on drug pricing, as an example, because it is so egregious, but they can't wait for that. So they're designing new ways to purchase care more directly and to have more say over what they're spending. Yeah, but they can have say on hospital and doctor prices, as you pointed out, talking about Sutter. Um, it's a little bit harder for even jumbo employers to have any say over drug prices, isn't it? Yes, it certainly has been. One way we have taken that on, and this is sort of a drop in the bucket, but we have been working with our members on designing a waste-free formulary and taking drugs off their formulary that add no value. It is remarkable, the resistance our members get from the PBMs who, quite frankly, are happy with the current system and the status quo. But we have had a couple of members who have just gone through and taken out wasteful drugs and are seeing 20 to 40 percent reductions in their drug spend with no negative impact on their employees. So those are some of the steps that they are taking. But they've got to be really assertive and innovative because the industry is just not helping. One other thing that's been raised higher on the priority list this year is health inequities. Um, what can employers do to help narrow what seem to be ever widening gaps in how people get health care based on their gender, race, ethnicity, and most of all, income? It is such an important question. And I will say our board voted this year to elevate taking on equity as one of our strategic priorities. Honestly, we should have done it a lot sooner, but we are committed to helping make a difference. There are lots of things we can do. We run a maternity program to improve quality for birth outcomes and to pay differently and include, as an example, mental health care for moms and babies. Again, that's one area where we can help. Birth equity in this country is 
horrific. Women of color have dramatically worse outcomes than white moms. So we are going to find ways where we can intervene, where it makes sense, where we have an influence, like taking on birth equity. So we don't have all the answers. We are learning. We are making overdue commitments here, but we want to be partners. And one thing that I would say is that affordability is also an equity issue. We have got to make healthcare affordable because the high prices, the utterly unaffordable care, particularly from hospitals, that harms people without means far more than it does others. So it is an equity issue to make care affordable. Elizabeth Mitchell, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Alice, why don't you go first this week? Yes, uh, another very depressing story from the New York Times called Like a Hand Grasping, Trump appointees describe the crushing of the CDC. And it just sort of confirms in very stark terms what we've been hearing for a lot of this year about the Trump administration's and political appointees' efforts to influence the science coming out of the CDC and here we have two people appointed by the Trump administration on the record describing exactly how that happened um, and how, you know, White House officials, when the CDC would develop guidelines for, say, restaurants or schools on how to protect people from the virus, folks from the White House and other political appointees would come in and say, well, these are too uh, economically onerous for businesses to implement, so you have to change it. And the CDC was trying to say, that's not our job. Our job is to say what the science says is safe. It's not our job to calculate how much it'll cost to implement it or how feasible it is. Our job is to say what is viable. So definitely read it. It's going to be really interesting for us to all watch and report on how the CDC attempts to uh, resurrect its reputation after this. Yeah. Rebecca. I chose the White House official recovers from severe COVID-19, friends says, by Jennifer Jacobs of Bloomberg. This is a story about Creed Bailey. He's the director of the White House Security Office. And he is one of so many White House employees and officials who have gotten COVID-19. He got a very severe case. Uh, he spent three months in the hospital. He lost his right foot and his lower leg. It, it's a very sad story. And it's a bit emblematic of how some employers are not protecting their employees. And some would say, it's also also indicates how the White House is not really looking out for the public health in general of the country and even of its own employees. So the fact that the White House Security Office director had to go through this is, is very sad. One thing that's interesting is that there was a GoFundMe webpage that was put up quite a while ago, several weeks ago, and um, they had raised about $30,000 by the time that the article appeared. And the GoFundMe page had been updated to say, please don't talk to the press about this. But interestingly enough, after the story appeared, a lot of people contributed to the GoFundMe account. And now it's gone from $30,000 to, last I checked, around 73000 
that's a positive sign, but the entire country is obviously struggling with COVID-19, and this is just one more sad saga in this whole whole episode. Yeah, and, and shout out to Jennifer Jacobs of Bloomberg, who's been all over the White House COVID outbreak. Um, Mac, what do you have? My story is How Do We Grieve? 300,000 Lives Lost. It's written by Will Stone. It's part of our partnership with uh, NPR. The thing about this that struck me is I remember vividly discussions in the editor's meeting about how we were going to chronicle and mark the deaths of 100,000 people from COVID, right? And then all of a sudden it hit 200,000, and now it's at 300,000. And it's just staggering. And I know that we all deal with COVID every day in the sense of trying to cover it and and how do you quantify it and how do you write about it. But looking at that number and some of the numbers in this story, it just was shocking for me. It's equivalent to September 11th happening nearly 100 times. One person now dies every 36 seconds from COVID-19. And it's now, over the last two weeks, it's become the leading cause of death in the United States, outpacing even heart disease and cancer. We might hit a half a million. I mean, it's just incredible. And I guess to me, it was just a cautionary tale for everyone who's either writing about it, God forbid, living through it, or I hope the people who think it's not necessarily a real thing will look at this story and absorb it. Well, if Mac has the macro level, then I have the micro level. My story is from the Texas Monthly. It's called Texas Wedding Photographers Have Seen Some Shit by Emily McCuller. And it basically explains just through the eyes of wedding photographers why we are where we are in the pandemic. Apparently, people think their individual weddings are more important than public health at large. Add alcohol and no masks, and pretty soon you've got major spread. I won't ruin it by even quoting from the story. You really have to read it. It's not that long. So that is our show for this week. If you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay, even when we're in different places. Next week, we will have a special year in review that we'll post on Wednesday for your hopefully stay-at-home listening for the holidays. And also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Mac? At Mary Agnes Carey. Alice? At Alice Olstein. Rebecca? At Rebecca Adams, D.C. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.